don't know what to say. I just work here sometimes. Crap. <laughs> it's cold. It's cold. Open intro is so much to put on me. Holy. holy <laughs> uh, you you sort of set the precedent that you have to come up with something to I say at the beginning. I know it's just a good movie. That's all I can say. filed or recorded and blogged, right? Chips in our kids' heads so they won't get lost. Society needs to crumble. We're all just too chicken shit to let it. Five, Mr. Rance. You will come to see things my way. Well, do you, uh, do you want to go ahead and uh, introduce us today, Ian, and our guests that we have? Are you sure you don't want Lauren to introduce us? <laughs> Lauren, do you want to? Oh, yeah, Lauren, you do it. You do it. Introduce <laughs> Paz of here. Uh, this is Paths of Fear, my brother's podcast with his friend Marshall, and my brother's name is Ian. <laughs> Hooray! Amazing. <laughs> I remembered my brother's name. Nice. I feel like that kind of just encompasses Paths of Fear as a whole, really. Uh, definitely. Definitely <laughs> did. Uh, but, but yeah, this is Paths of Fear. And of course, we have joining us this week, audience member and lifelong dancer, it's my sister, Lothlorian. Hello. Welcome to the show. <laughs> I still, every time I see your name still in Discord, I always pronounce it Lothalorian, just because it just <laughs> it brings me satisfaction for some reason. <laughs> it's like putting together Falafel and Orion. I get that. Uh-huh. Well, well, this week, uh, as part of our recent slew of slasher movies, is The Cabin in the Woods. It won for our Meta Slasher Showdown and was recommended by you, Lorian, as well as Enbarsh. It's an American slasher horror parody film made in 2011. It was co-written by Drew Goddard and Joss Whedon and was directed by Drew Goddard. What movies did it beat out in? Oh, yeah. Shoot. We're, we're including more and more information every week. I know. Uh, it beat out Scream and Behind the Mask, uh, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. That it did. Both also great movies. They are. Scream is one of my favorites of all time, but Cabin in the Woods is also one of my favorites from all time. So, Well, neither Cabin in the Woods nor uh, Behind the Mask would ever have happened without Scream. That's true. That's uh, without Wes Craven's big old contribution there. Yeah, I was really excited for any of these options this week. Uh, do you want to give us a little teaser, Ian, and then we'll kind of delve into our thoughts on the movie? Sounds good. A group of American college students are spending their weekend at a lake house deep in the forest. After arriving, everything is as it should be, and the group is slated for a good time away from the distractions of modern life. What they don't know is that their every move is being watched, every action measured, and every decision marked down. There's something much bigger going on here, something hidden under the cabin in the woods. Yeah, that was pretty good. I like how you always manage to work the title in there. It's necessary. (laughs) Yeah, Marshall loves it, right, Marshall? It's the only reason I do this podcast. I actually don't like it, but I feel the pressure <laughs> to uh, to keep doing it. Ian once tried not to do it, and I threatened to quit. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, I think, one of the better horror movies out there, if you ask me. I don't know if anyone else is in agreement with me. I agree. But... <laughs> okay, cool. I agree. It's right up there with Tucker and Dale. Oh, yeah. Hot damn. 
we're all in the good boat. Um, I think that it just has so much rewatchability is what's so fun about it. Mm-hmm. You can go back and like, especially what makes the movie is that decision that they make in the basement where they're like, what creature are we going to summon? That's that just opens up so much possibility and so much just interest in the world itself, not mm-hmm. only in the plot and story. So I just I just love it. It just does so much right. Yeah, it's it's almost like it takes the horror genre and it makes it into um like its own like MCU universe, you know? <laughs> That's like really cool as a horror movie watcher to feel like the whole genre has been like uh placed and grounded in a certain reality that you get to think about and also enjoy watching. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Agreed. Yep. Well, what do you have any general thoughts for us, Lorian? Um, I mean, I just, as a avid horror watcher, I feel like this is one of those movies that is served by seeing as much other horror as possible, which makes it extra fun. And the rewatchability is better than almost any movie I've ever seen because, um, between the paper I had to write about this movie and the presentation I did about it, I probably watched this movie 20 or 30 times in one semester. And I'm really glad it was so rewatchable. <laughs> That's a lot of times. Holy hot damn. Yes, we, we've really got an expert on this one. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, well, let's go around. Let's give our ratings. I have to give this one. I think this is just one of those tens. I think it's just one of those. No getting around it for me. Fair. Um, you know, I, I was actually, I was, th- I was thinking about it and, uh, you know, of course the, um, I think the only tens I've given on this so far is uh, Tucker and Dale versus evil and, uh, train to Busan. And, um, this movie, I was like, Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, is it a nine? Is it a 10? But I, I think, yeah, I think I also have to go for a 10. How about you, Lauren? You got a, you got a rating for us. Did you think of it ahead of time? Yeah, I give it a nine uh, because there's nothing the movie could have done better, but it gets one point knocked off for Joss Whedon's garbageness. That's fair. <laughs> for Joss Whedon. The, the, uh, the Whedon tax on the mm-hmm. score. Yeah, because Joss is just such a garbage human being that it has to get one point knocked off. That's fair. Poor Goddard. <laughs> yeah, I Poor know. Goddard. Marked uh, down just for working with him. <laughs> It's not fair, but no, there you have but it. life is unfair. Ian, do you want to go ahead and give us our summary and then we'll go into it in greater detail? Sure can. Two middle-aged men walk through a large facility discussing mundane details of their lives. A younger woman in a lab coat approaches them, worried, and informs them of an incident at the Stockholm facility. The two men dismiss this and board a golf cart to head to another part of the facility. It's going to be a long weekend if everyone's that puckered up. So you want to come over Monday night? I'm going to pick up some power drills, liberate my cabinets. Off in an American suburb, Dana and her friend Jules talk about school in her upstairs bedroom. Specifically, they talk about a recently ended affair Dana had with her professor. Soon after, Jules' boyfriend Kurt and his friend, a fix-up for Dana, arrive at the house. It's revealed they're setting up to head off to a lakeside cabin that Kurt's cousin owns. After Dana finishes packing, they all go downstairs to get everything into the RV parked outside. Marty is the last of the group to arrive. He pulls up to his car, smoking pot from a large metal bong, which collapses to a travel mug. The group enters the RV and drives off, while someone from the roof of a nearby building watches them. 
Nest is empty. We're right on time. Back in the facility, the two middle-aged men step into a control center and confirm the position of the target. Let's see what we got. The group closes in on their destination, driving through a tunnel and along a steep cliff to reach the cabin. As the RV emerges from the tunnel, a bird flies overhead, but hits some kind of invisible shield and falls into the abyss below. The group arrives at the cabin and unpacks. Holden goes to his bedroom to put on his bathing suit when he sees an unnecessarily violent painting on the wall. Upon removing it, he reveals a one-way mirror which peers into Dana's room. As Dana begins to undress in front of him, he does the right thing and yells for her to wait. He shows the one-way mirror to the whole group, and to make Dana more comfortable, he offers to switch rooms with her. Thanks for uh, being decent. Oh, it's the least I could do, since Kurt and Jewel sold you to me for marriage. Um, they're not subtle. Dana accepts this offer and briefly looks at Holden while he undresses before she puts the painting back up, though covering its violent display with a sheet. Meanwhile, people have gathered in the facility control center where large screens show surveillance feeds of the cabin. The workers place bets seemingly on how the college students will meet their fate. Hadley, the younger of the two middle-aged men in charge of the operation, wants it to be a merman, as he's never seen one at work before. It's also revealed that they can control the environments from the control center, including being able to pipe in chemicals. They also talk about how the blonde hair dye Jules used before the trip was modified to diminish cognitive functions. Dumb blonde, very artistic. In the cabin, everyone is in the living room, drinking and talking. Marty also continues to smoke from the stash of pot he brought with him. A few drinks in, the group decides to play truth or dare. Jules is dared to make out with a wolf head mounted on the wall, which she does a little too well. Then it's Dana's turn. Kurt teases her, saying she always chooses truth, leading Dana to choose dare. Just then, the basement hatch door flies open, and Dana is dared to go down into it. After scaring herself, the rest of the group comes down into the basement with her. Upon Marty lighting a nearby lantern, the basement is revealed to have a large and random assortment of strange and creepy odds and ends. Ah, uh, guys, I'm not sure it's awesome to be down here. Dana picks up a dusty diary. Kurt tinkers with a spherical puzzle. Jules examines a necklace. Marty holds a conch shell. And Holden is mesmerized by a moving ballerina jewelry box. The workers in the control center are silent, watching the screens in anticipation. Dana breaks the silence, and seemingly everyone comes to their senses as she calls them to all listen to a passage of the diary she's been reading. Mama screamed most of the night. I prayed that she might find faith, but she only stopped when Papa cut her belly and stuffed the coals in. Judah told me in my dream that Matthew took him to the black room, so I know he is killed. I want to understand the glory of the pain like Matthew, but cutting the flesh makes him have a husband's bulge, and I do not get like that. Jesus, can we not? Oh, go on. Why? I want to know. The diary belonged to a young girl with a violent father. The diary also contains a Latin passage. Marty, already uneasy about the reading of the diary, 
tells Dana not to read it. I'm drawing a line in the fucking sand here. Do not read the Latin. Read it. What the fuck? He even hears a whispering voice telling them to read it out loud, but nobody else seems to hear it. Despite Marty's warnings, Dana reads the Latin, and somewhere outside the cabin, the Buckner family rises from their graves. Dolor igneo animus. The winners of the lottery, those who chose redneck zombie torture, celebrate in the control room, while Hadley can only despair. Oh man, I'm sorry. He had the conch in his hands. Know, you know, in a couple more minutes, who knows what might have happened. I, I am never going to see a merman. Ever. Two would be thankful. Those things are terrifying. The group of friends returns to the living room, where Jules and Kurt seem to be acting out of character. Jules dances suggestively in front of the fire, while Kurt is overly assertive and loud. Kurt and Jules decide to take their increasingly sexual energy outside. Marty is concerned and asks Dana if they seem to be acting strange. Dana dismisses this and thinks it's just the alcohol. I've seen Kurt drunk. Jules too. Well, then maybe it's something else. What? You're not seeing what you don't want to see. Puppeteers. Pop-tarts? Did you say you have pop-tarts? Marty, I love you. You're really high. Kurt and Jules make out in the woods, but Jules says they should go inside before going any farther. The operators won't have this, and so pheromones are vented in nearby. This works, and Kurt and Jules begin undressing to have sex. Okay, baby, let's see some boobies. Show us the goods. Suddenly, Jules is stabbed in the hand by a nearby zombie. <laughs> Kurt tackles the zombie to save her, but he's stabbed from behind. <laughs> Jules is captured by another pair of zombies and is beheaded as Kurt is held in place by another zombie. This we offer in humility and fear for the blessed peace of your eternal slumber as it ever was. As it ever was. As Jules dies, Hadley and his older peer, Citizen, recite some kind of incantation. Hadley pulls a lever, and blood runs into a grooved stone tablet somewhere below. A tablet in the shape of a female figure flaunting her bosom. In his room, Marty hears the whispering voice again, this time telling him to go for a walk. Marty denies the voice his obedience. I'm the boss of my own brain, so give it up. I'm gonna go for a walk. He heads outside and takes a leak in front of the cabin, where a zombie girl approaches him quietly from behind. Kurt, bloodied and panting, runs up to him from the forest and rushes him inside, knocking over the zombie girl on the way. They get inside and lock the door. Kurt tells everyone Jules is dead that they have to barricade the cabin. Look. We'll lock this place down. He's right. We'll go room by room, barricade every window and door. We gotta play it safe. No matter what happens, we have to stay together. This disappoints the operators who pipe in more chemicals and have the whispering voice tell them to split up. This isn't right. We should split up. We can 
cover more ground that way. Yeah. Yeah, good idea. Really? As the zombie breaks in, each person is forced into a separate room, where the door locks behind them. At the facility, the workers are puzzled why their tricks aren't working on Marty. He's not doing what he's supposed to do, and he can hear the voices. At the same time, Marty finds a bug on his lamp after knocking it over, confirming his suspicions. I want a reality TV show. <laughs> My parents are going to think I'm such a burnout. Suddenly, however, a zombie breaks through the window behind him and drags him outside, causing a sigh of relief to wash over the operators. As Marty screams for help, he's seen dragged over the hill, followed by spurts of blood and the noise of stabbing. The facility operators figure out that while they had laced his pot with other drugs, they missed his secret stash, and what he was smoking was making him immune to their tricks. They pull the lever once again, filling another stone tablet with blood this time shaped as an energetic man holding a glass of wine. A zombie begins breaking into Dana's room. Holden breaks through the one-way mirror between the rooms and helps her out of hers. Come on! With a zombie breaking into Holden's room as well, they flee through the basement hatch. A zombie throws a bear trap attached to a chain down the hatch at Holden. It grabs onto his back, and he's pulled upward. Dana throws her weight onto the chain, causing the zombie to fall into the hatch, where she stabs him several times in the head with a knife. Kurt opens the cellar door from the outside, and the three run into the RV and drive off after Kurt tells them the zombies got Marty. As they head towards the tunnel, Hadley realizes that the explosive charges to cause the cave-in never went off. As the three friends frantically try to get away, Hadley and Sutterson try just as frantically to stop them. The RV makes it halfway through the tunnel before the charges are blown, forcing the group to reverse out of the tunnel as it collapses. The group realizes their situation is desperate, and lacking climbing equipment to scale the cliffs, Kurt suggests he use his dirt bike on the back of the RV to jump the ravine. Kurt, are you sure about this? I've done bigger jumps than this. You got a smooth run, and maybe a five-foot differential on the other side. But you gotta give it everything. Kurt. Look, you guys, you stay in the Rambler. I'll get help. If I wipe out, I'll fucking limp for help. I'm coming back here. Kurt mounts his bike, revs his engine, and zooms towards the cliff's edge. He flies through the air with exceptional technique. When he hits the invisible shield, the bird had hit earlier. He too falls into the seemingly endless abyss below. A stone tablet in the shape of a man throwing a spear fills with blood. Shocked, Holden and Dana re-enter the RV and realize that Marty was right all along. Holden comes up with a plan, drive as far as they can, then walk, while Dana seems hopeless. Holden tries to cheer her up. OK, 
okay, no matter what happens, you gotta stay But is interrupted when he's stabbed through the back of the neck by a zombie who had been inside the RV the whole time. With no one at the helm, the RV plunges off a bank into the lake. A stone tablet of a man holding a scroll fills with blood. Dana makes her way to the pier and collapses, completely out of breath. The same zombie she had stabbed earlier steps onto the pier. It begins ceaselessly beating her. Back at the facility, a celebration and opening of champagnes commences. While all other countries' rituals had failed, including Japan's, theirs had been successful. But the celebration is interrupted as a landline phone painted red rings. Everyone goes silent, and Holden picks up the phone. That's impossible. Everything was done within the guidelines. The Virgin is the only one. No, I, I am not doubting you. Which one? The rules weren't followed. Someone else is still alive. As Dana is about to be finished by the bear trap zombie, Marty comes out of nowhere and knocks the zombie off the pier with his metal bong. He grabs Dana, and they run into the woods. Marty brings them to a zombie grave where he pushes the dirt away, revealing a hatch. They fall into a room below with a dismembered zombie, courtesy of Marty, and an access panel with exposed wiring, also courtesy of Marty, and the reason why the charges in the tunnel hadn't blown. Marty shows Dana an elevator below them, and he explains how someone must have sent the zombies after them. He tells Dana that they should take it. I think I can get it to go down. Where else are we gonna go? They descend down into the facility. On their way, they pass other creatures in identical-looking elevator pods. The Sugar Plum Fairy, the Man with the Puzzle Ball, the Doll Faces, the Killer Bride. Dana realizes that they chose their own fate when she read the diary. They made us choose. They made us choose how we die. A platoon of officers is sent to kill Marty. While not being completely in line with the rules of the ritual, the operators see no other option. Upon reaching the ground floor of the facility, Marty and Dana wander into the hallway. A female voice speaks over the PA system, offering them sympathy, but insisting that Marty must die. I can only imagine your pain and confusion, but know this. What's happening to you is part of something bigger, something older than anything known. They then hear armed guards coming towards them, so they retreat back to the elevators and take cover in some kind of control room while the guards fire upon them. Dana realizes this room is for controlling the elevators and locates a big red button labeled Purge System on the control panel. She uncovers it and presses it. Let's get this party started.
an alarm sounds, and the guards, while initially confused, are terrified upon hearing all six elevators around them ding simultaneously. Monsters, creatures, and things spring from the elevators, and the guards are massacred. The monsters quickly overwhelm the facility, killing workers and guards alike. After a large bat crashes through the elevator control room window, Marty and Dana are forced into the facility, but find a hole in the wall to climb into. In the control room facility, the vault door sealing it off is busted open. Holden is knocked to the ground. As he lays there stunned, he hears the flapping of fins. A disgusting humanoid-shaped sea creature emerges from the smoke, and Hadley finally gets to see his merman. Sitterson manages to open a hatch in the floor and drops into a hallway underneath. Just as he gets up, Marty and Dana round the corner and Dana reactively stabs him in the chest. Sitterson slides to the ground against the wall. He tells Dana that she has to kill Marty before he falls limp and dies. Marty and Dana, following the hallway, end up in a cavernous and ritualistic room with five large stone tablets set into the walls. Dana realizes that there's a tablet for each of them, hers being the only one unfilled. The director walks in from behind them, her voice the same as the one from the PA system. She explains the origin and necessity of the ritual, how it's conducted worldwide to appease the ancient ones, the dark gods who once ruled the earth, how the monsters they've been seeing are nothing in comparison. What if you don't pull it off? They rise. Who does? What's beneath us? The ancient ones. The gods that used to rule the earth. The ritual keeps them dormant and follows a set of rules. There are five sacrificial victims. The whore, Jules, who must die first. Then the fool, Marty. The athlete, Kurt. The scholar, Holden. And finally, the virgin, Dana whose death doesn't matter as long as she doesn't die before the others. Me. Virgin, we work with what we have. The director tells Marty he must die to save the world, though Marty retorts, saying that if such a bloodthirsty ritual is required to save mankind, then maybe mankind isn't worth saving. Despite his resistance, Dana raises a gun to his head. But before she can follow through, she's attacked from behind by a werewolf which mauls her. Marty picks up the gun she dropped and shoots the werewolf several times before he's tackled by the director. The director pins Marty against the edge of the bottomless pit surrounding the room. The zombie girl, who had made her way down from the surface, embeds her axe into the director's skull. Marty pushes her off into the pit, sending both her and the zombie girl into it. Dana and Marty prop themselves up against the stairs and make up. They contemplate the end of the world while they smoke a joint Marty had on hand. You know, I don't think Kurt even has a cousin. Huh. The ground shakes violently and the cavernous room begins to collapse. On the surface, the cabin falls inward, 
and a giant fist crashes through it, its palms slamming on the ground in front of it. The old gods are awake. That was such a good summary, Ian. Oh my god. Incredible. Thank you. Thank you. I think that was the best summary I've ever heard, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I want to ask each of y'all, what's your fa- who's your favorite character? Who is just like, who does this movie for you? Because for me, it's Marty. I second that. Marty, all the way. It's, it's so hard to really say anyone else. I mean, gosh... He makes the movie, and it makes me so sad because I looked up a cast list, right? And he's like, he's like fifth listed. He's the last survivor listed. Oh man, the last like cabin mate list. I'm just like, hold on. He was so much better than anyone else. Save the best for last. I mean, but not in cast listings. <laughs> they put Chris Hemsworth above him because he's Chris Hemsworth now. Back then, he wasn't <laughs> even Chris Hemsworth. Not really true. Yeah, I I even forgot Chris Hemsworth was in this movie, which goes to show you that like that's not the important character. But I'll never forget Marty. <laughs> yeah, I know. Marty's just great. Well, so I know a lot of little fun facts through my dad. And this movie, like, it had so much trouble actually getting, like, put out into the world. It just sat on a shelf for so long just because, like, distribution issues or something. I don't remember. Um, but uh, I believe it was Goddard would send the movie out to a whole bunch of different producers and a whole bunch of different, just a whole bunch of movie people. And you'd be like, this guy is your next action star. This Chris Hemsworth guy. He's He's got what it takes. And then surely enough, he was cast as Thor. Dang. And one thing I love about Marty is Fran Kranz, I think his name is. It might be German, so you might, you might say it better, Ian. Uh, mm. But he, he wears such baggy clothing because, yes, it goes with a stoner look, but he was also in, like, better shape than the other two guys. So they had to, like, make up for that by putting him in super baggy clothing because he couldn't. They couldn't have the stoner be like so much more ripped than both of those dudes. That didn't, Lauren, didn't you tell me about this? Like during your research, didn't you say that like they called him like a, a buff Jesus or something? <laughs> yeah, actually, a video I just rewatched before recording this called him a buff Jesus. <laughs> That's spectacular. He is a buff Jesus. That's what it comes down to. And then it's got Bradley Whitford, dude, with who's Steve, and I just love him. He's he anything he's in, he's hilarious. I find. There's a lot of really good talent in this movie, mm-hmm. uh, not not just in its, um, you know, writing and directing, even though Joss Whedon uh, is a bit of a garbage can. <laughs> um, but he's a garbage can person, but he's a hell of a writer. Exactly. Yeah. So and then you've got, you know, so in the directing and then also the acting. So there's just there, there's a lot of talent in this movie and it really shows. And I think one of my favorite facts about this movie is I believe he and Drew Goddard wrote the screenplay over the weekend in a hotel like they locked themselves in a hotel room and just wrote it over like one weekend yeah i, th- I think awesome. i've seen that as well it's it's insane that seems to be how we get a lot of meta stuff because um the guy who wrote scream did the same thing he was just he had this great idea and he's like i'm gonna go away for a weekend and just write mm-hmm. so i guess there's something about being isolated for a weekend in a hotel room that leads to great meta writing and I think um, other than just having good characters, it has a, a good, a, a really cool and creative story. And of course, it's a parody of like the horror genre, which you can really appreciate if you've watched a lot of horror movies. But on top of that, it's like a, a critique of a lot of the elements in the horror genre written through the eyes of, you know, these office workers who are creating this this movie, essentially. Yeah, no, by all means, it was great. The whole metaphors behind it and everything are just spectacular. 
I'm really curious, Lauren, what did you write your paper on specifically? Or was it just anything and everything that had to do with this movie? Um, I wrote my paper on the fact that Marty is actually the final girl. Oh, okay. That's awesome. I love playing around with the final girl idea. I need to hear more of this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. What makes him the final girl? Let me see. Let me pull up my essay. It's going to be hard to decide which parts to read. I I reread it before this. Let's see. I talk about how Dana is set up to be the final girl for us at the beginning because we have to have that MacGuffin of Mm -hmm. Dana being the final girl. Um. It's like, I don't want to just read the whole paper. That would be too long. <laughs> the, the argument I can see for it, that like if I just had to do it at a, um, just do it off the top of my head, is that really it's Marty that makes all the decisions and goes through with all the actions to actually overcome what is the enemy, which ends up being the whole system, really. But he's the one that takes that kind of action and just does things differently so that they get into their final situation. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of encompass the system into Sigourney Weaver's character, the director, uh, which I thought was just super cool, especially casting Sigourney Weaver for that. I was like, oh, my God, what a thing. Talk about talent, right? <laughs> Apparently, she was super excited to um, co-star with a werewolf in her scene. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> we need more werewolf movies, man. Uh, oh, yeah. Um. So here, maybe I'll just read my paragraph on the final girl. Hit us with it. Um, One big difference between The Cabin in the Woods and the average slasher is its play with the role of the final girl. At first, Dana seems to be our final girl, the hero of slasher films. And then, quote, the final girl looks for the killer, even tracking him to his forest hut or his underground labyrinth, then at him. In the final scene, she stops screaming, looks at the killer, and reaches for the knife. She addresses the killer on his own terms. She's the first character introduced, and we learn a bit of her background right away. She had a relationship with a professor that ended badly and isn't interested in any current romance, and she would rather hide in textbooks than party. All of these sound like final girl traits, according to Carol Clover. The final girl is introduced at the beginning and is the only character to be developed in any psychological detail. We understand immediately from the attention paid it that hers is the main storyline. Not only is Dana introduced at the beginning of the film and is immediately somewhat psychologically developed, she is also shy, especially sexually, and academically interested, which fits another of Clover's final girl criterion. Quote, the gender of the final girl is likewise compromised from the outset by her masculine interests, her inevitable sexual reluctance. Penetration, it seems, constructs the female. End quote. And then one of the first hints that Dana is MacGuffin of a final girl takes place when she reads the Latin, even when Marty asks her not to. And later, Marty asks if she notices anything off about the situation, and Dana denies any oddness. Our real final girl is Marty. Our first clue that he may be our final girl is his lack of response to Jules' sexual advances, which demonstrates Clover's idea of the final girl's, quote, inevitable sexual reluctance, end quote. Marty is the only character in the entire film who doesn't do anything sexual. The scene where he pleads with our MacGuffin final girl, Jesus, can we not? In response to her reading of the diary, and later more insistently, I'm drawing a line in the fucking sand here, do not read the Latin, solidifies his role as the final girl. He is also the only one to notice, and the voice says, read it, read it out loud. Marty is, quote, the first character to sense something amiss and the only one to deduce from the accumulating evidence the patterns and extent of the threat. The only one, in other words, 
whose perspective approaches our own privileged understanding of the situation, end quote, also from Clover. He may not know who's pulling the strings, but he realizes something very wrong is happening. Later, we have a scene showing the contrast between Dana as the MacGuffin and Marty as the final girl. He asks her, you seriously believe nothing weird is going on? Dana explains away their friend's odd behaviors. Kurt's just drunk, asking Marty if what he's noticing is just the pot. Marty replies with, you're not seeing what you don't want to see. Puppeteers. Of course, I don't say it like Fran Kratz says it, but <laughs> <laughs> who does? He does say it well. <laughs> and then, you know, he finds the hidden camera, and then he's killed, which we're like, oh, must be Dana. Mm-hmm. But um, that he does fulfill another role of the final girl in the femininity of his death scene. He screams and yells, help me, as he's dragged away. He claws at the ground to no avail. Clover mentions, quote, crying, cowering, screaming, fainting, trembling, begging for mercy, belong to the female. Abject terror, in short, is gendered feminine, end quote. Which, you know, is a whole issue with our society being like, only women can be scared. Men aren't allowed to be scared. Men aren't allowed to scream and cry for help. I've never once been scared. (laughs) I've never once screamed. Never happened. (laughs) Okay, and if you if you want me to play along, I will. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, I've known you your whole life. Oh no! <laughs> Going back to you know what what you were saying, Lorian, I really like the idea of actually thinking of a Marty as the final girl, and yeah, it's it's interesting to actually you know compare because uh, of course we saw Halloween recently, the original, and it is interesting seeing like the the parallels between how uh, the main girl in Halloween, Lori, acts and behaves compared to uh, Marty. Like she's the one actually seeing the killer to being like, huh, that's kind of strange where like her friends aren't seeing it. It's that classic sort of thing of like, you see kind of what's going on, even if you don't see all of it. Um, So it is really cool, like seeing these tropes show up within not the character that you're expecting. Yeah, and actually, if you go into other movies, I know we haven't done Nightmare on Elm Street yet, but the way that the final girl in that movie act behaves reminds me a little bit more because she's like figuring out, you know, she like starts to puzzle it out and she's like, okay, I know these things, so that means I can try this. And she's like figuring out more and more of the pieces of the puzzle as the movie goes on. And the same way that once Marty dies he Mm -hmm. like crawls into the grave and he's messing with the wires and Mm -hmm. and also i'm just gonna paraphrase this because it's such a long paper but basically making marty into the final girl might be seen as anti-feminist because you're giving that power back to a man but Mm -hmm. it could also be seen as forcing men to really experience that abject terror that like the man is the primary victim that you know, it gives you a character to really connect to who's a primary character suffering all of this instead of just sort of a side character. And it might force men to feel that thing that the final girl usually feels. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's a deviation from the norm. And just the fact that like, it's now a role that can be inherited both by men and women, just that in a way makes it more progressive towards an equal state. So I feel like that inherently is feminism. Yeah, for me, it definitely comes off as more feminist than anti-feminist for sure. But it's important to know that there's always that other way of looking at things. Oh, for sure. 
And actually, you know, after after talking about it, thinking of like Lori, the way that she acts to me is actually more similar to how Dana acts in this movie than how Marty acts, which I I guess kind of goes along with the fact that they want you to think that Dana's the final girl uh, up until the end, um, because you know, like she exhibits like some of those things, uh, but not like that, uh, like evolved final girl of like actually uh, figuring things out. Because that, because of course, I think originally, especially in the slasher genre, it was really always about just seeing all these people get killed, and you were kind of on the bad guy's side, which they of course very much showed in this film. You know, like everyone in the office is on the side of like the uh, the redneck zombies uh, killing all these college students. It's yeah, it's it's interesting to see Dana sort of, I guess, represent the the former and then Marty uh, representing the latter, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I feel like it's almost a handoff between the two. Like Dana's taking the role for a while, but then her her kind of final girl doesn't suffice for the situation for our new horror movies. And so we need to be put into Marty's kind of final girl uh, because that's the actual that that's the one that actually gets stuff done. Yeah, we need to think outside the box by being high, and that, that's mm-hmm. how you that's how you get there. Basically, smoke weed. That's what the movie <laughs> basically is. Basically, smoke weed. <laughs> if there's anything you can take from this movie, basically, smoke weed. Yeah, just make sure you're in Colorado when you start the mm-hmm. horror movie and you've got your big old stash ready to go. And when you start <laughs> to feel like you're being manipulated, just smoke more weed. You've got <laughs> your expandable bong. <laughs> That thing is awesome. That bong is so cool. Like, dude, is that a thing you can get anywhere? I remember, like, Grayson was talking about it forever ago, and he's like, there's no way that's possible. But, like, I feel like someone can make it possible. <laughs> that that needs to be a Kickstarter. Yes. Oh, my God. The first Paths of Fear Kickstarter to uh, make Marty's bong. Make it, like, strong enough that you could knock out a zombie with it? Yes, it can be used as a weapon. <laughs> Appeal to non-smoker audiences as well. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, because I prefer edibles, but since it's also a thermos, you could, like, drink some, you know. Exactly. Oh, my <laughs> now, God. Now, for this... the record, since I no longer live in Colorado, I do not get high. There we go. <laughs> Just in case any law enforcement is listening to this. Well, you know, you know our tar- target audience. <laughs> We're going to make this happen. We're getting engineers now. Um, We're, we're hiring. Go to, go to mm-hmm. pacifier.com slash job. Bong engineers wanted. (laughs) One of so my favorite thing is when you take this movie and you put it in terms of the horror industry and when the ancient gods, when the old evil ancient gods become the audience uh, and everything else falls into place around that. It just it's such a wonderful critique of the horror industry as a whole. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's just spectacularly done, spectacularly placed in as metaphors. So and we have our audience members that they're the sacrifices they're the people that we want to see die all the time. And of course, the organization is the people actually making the movie happen and all. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that that's always just such a fun way to look at it. So we get this meta form of they're all looking at it from the outside and it's very much deconstructed into kind of just essential horror parts. But then we see that the tool that ends up being the thing that wins is actually Marty smoking the weed. And I, I'm so curious if they actually meant anything behind that. Like if it was like pro marijuana or something on their end. I'm always so curious. I mean, that. it it is interesting, like because that, that's a very uh, intentional thing, right? Because mm-hmm. like like you're right. The whole reason Marty's able to figure all this out 
is in no small part because he's high. Uh, you know, it makes him invulnerable to their dummy making uh, compounds because <laughs> they couldn't find all of his stashes, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> yeah, it's like so. I mean, obviously, that's very intentional. The only thing I can think of is, you know, smoking weed is very much associated with creativity, especially in writers and and all that. So I have to imagine that that I mean, maybe they got high when they wrote the screenplay, you know, in their long weekend, you know, I mean, maybe that's how they did it. And like, I can see it being like this huge metaphor when they were making it. But I can also see them just being like, what if the stoner is immune because he's smoking weed? Like, it's just an idea they had that they laughed about. And they're like, wait, that works. And it could be either. And yeah, it could uh, be nothing. It could be everything. So I'm just <laughs> always so curious. What do you think, Lorian? What do you think the weed's for? Well, something I actually just thought of, um, and I have no idea if they were doing this intentionally. Honestly, I would not give Whedon credit for thinking of this because this is exactly the sort of thing he would never think about. (laughs) But um, is the whole war against pot, or like, you know, there's the war against drugs, but like the reason, honestly, that law enforcement targets pot is because it tends to be used more by communities of color. And so... Um, being against pot is a way to give you an excuse to subjugate people that you see as undesirable or other. So then if somebody is using pot, they're being cast as against that system. And it actually makes me wonder what it would be like to see a a non-white Marty character. Obviously, Fran Kranz's great. Like, I loved seeing him as this character. Mm-hmm. But I would be interested, how would it change the movie if we cast a person of color in that role? Yeah, uh, no, that is a great question. It probably would have made more of a rustle in just the movie world, but I feel like it definitely wouldn't have been as popular, which is so sad to say, because it would have made too much of a rustle, and people are like, but we can't have, we can't have color people smoking pop, because it's all, and the, just people are dumb, is what it comes down to. So yeah, I feel like because of that, it would just, it would fall apart a little bit, just at the box office, which is so sad. I, I do see your point, though, Lauren, like, seeing the weed as, like, a symbol for being in opposition you know to the institution that that is interesting because of course then that puts marty's character into that role of he is against the system and ultimately even you know with them saying like hey you know you can die to save the world right and you know or you can die anyway and not save the world and he's like well those are both really enticing choices (laughs) but he you know despite all that still decides to uh you know go against the system um, and not not give in which is pretty cool because maybe starting over would be better and i can absolutely see that as an appealing option yeah and we get to feel that through marty because we connect to marty and that is one of the sad things about the fact that i think if he hadn't been white then a lot of audiences wouldn't have connected to him as much which is a really sad commentary on like white is the default mm-hmm. no it's yeah it's just crazy to spoil you that that is the case I want to also say how I th- clever it was that they used all this like smoke and stuff to influence their decisions. They they had like the blonde hair dye was to make yeah. what was her name? She was like Jules. Uh, yeah, Jules. She was less cognitively functionable because uh, she had this hair dye. And I just, I just think it's it's hilarious because we always watch these movies and we do see like stereotypes of people. We get into that a lot because you don't want to de- take too much time to delve into a real character. Um. But that's not really how people are. But like the fact that they there was so much work put into it to make them that way is just great. Like Marty calls it. He says, like, 
why is uh why is Kurt being like this? He's a sociology major. What's up with all this alpha male <laughs> bullshit? And like I was just like, that's genius. <laughs> yeah, and, and and they they really set it up well. Like uh, like at the start of the movie when Kurt is talking to to Dana, and he like looks at her like quote unquote really nerdy books that Jules looked at, and he's like, oh, you got to read this other stuff. Like he's obviously like a you know a really book kind of guy who's also like into football you know like yeah he's not just a straight stereotype but like sigourney weaver says at the end of the movie they work with what they have and so they like meld these people into characters so that they're easily digestible by the uh by the ancient ones by the by the machine by the audience yeah exactly because you can see like at the beginning you're like oh i mean you can absolutely see how kurt and holden are friends because they're both like nerds honestly but they're also mm-hmm. both like sporty which people like that exist and we don't like to think about that though because it's too complex and neither do the ancient evil gods that's right one issue that i had with the movie it's not anything movie breaking or anything but one thing that i was like hold on what is this is when we see the fool's like little i don't know picture getting filled with blood but Marty didn't die. And I was like, where did all that blood come from? What blood did they just gather for that fool's, like, filling that fool's little, like, symbol? Uh-huh. That always that always bothered me. I don't know why. And, like, another thing you could look at is uh, when Holden? Is that his name? Yeah. Yeah, Holden. When, when he, like, dies and drives the bus into, like, the lake, it's like, well, how are they going to get his blood now? You know, he's... Oh, I guess it's true. Yeah, it it seems like almost they fill it at a as like a ritual. Then it's actually gathering their blood, you know. Yeah, after watching the movie so many times, I honestly, my headcanon is that that's not actually blood. Those are like some kind of basically like substitute blood that's sort of more of a ritual. And yeah, because honestly, like there's so much of it and it comes so fast. Like, how would it even be? their blood so i've i've just come to the conclusion that it it symbolizes their blood Mm -hmm. it's just like part of the ritual and i don't even know if it's necessary like because how much of this is just stuff that's been passed down and never questioned which is part of the whole question of the stories why are we not questioning Mm -hmm. I, i wonder what what it really means uh for you know like when the when the ancient one like at the end like the giant fist comes to the earth um i wonder what that really what the idea there is like i feel like what does it mean to awaken the ancient ones i feel like it's almost saying that if we do if we mess with horror too much if we don't get things right if we produce a horror movie that doesn't follow all these guidelines then that the audience just revolts and they're like hold on this was terrible and so what they just kind of tear down horror for a while and horror it's it's a shame because i feel like horror gets critiqued a lot for just a few movies when there's a lot of great horror out there, but there are, there's a lot of really bad horror as well. But I feel like people don't differentiate that. It's all just horror to them. So it's hard to introduce mm-hmm. people to the genre when they're familiar with like one or two bad horror movies. And I mean, you've got all these great horror movies out of Japan and U.S. is number two, though, and we work harder. So, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> <laughs> we make more shitty movies. I, I do I do like how, how they like included other countries and like how how like Japan, of course, was like never failed. And I love that they could they felt like they could fall back on others because like whenever we are lacking in one like the US is ever lacking in horror, we just go get it somewhere else. Like and we've done that with Japan. We've probably we've probably taken it from other cultures and I'm just not too familiar, but we mm-hmm. just look for it somewhere else when we're not doing good at it. 
Yeah, it's interesting because I think I've basically almost only ever seen American or Japanese horror with like one or two um, British horror movies and like one Italian horror movie that I've seen. I, I could probably count on one hand how many I've seen like in, in other regions. In contemporary Europe, the issue is that they don't really... It's a weird thing that I learned when I was doing this whole screenwriting thing is that they don't really believe in writing out a story too much. They just have the general guidelines, but then it's the director's responsibility to just make the film happen anyways. Mm -hmm. So do you get very little like actual screenplays going with movies? Um, and it's it's the weirdest thing because it's so important, but it's more about like the form and like making the film just from the director. And it's almost like frowned upon to have writing. So, and I feel like horror, it kind of needs writing, though, because it's very directed. And not directed, like, by a director. It's very guided through the story. Mm -hmm. um, very particular with that. So, I feel like that's why we don't see too many contem contemporary horror movies from other places like, uh, in Europe. But I think we do see some good African culture horror. And that, that can be some really cool stuff. But, yeah, I think it just does... I, the movie, overall, just does a really great job of critiquing horror, of but also representing horror as a genre and yeah. just, and then on top of that, it's also just a great movie. So mm -hmm. I feel like it's, it's hard to go wrong. And that's why it's a 10. Like it really covers all the points. Um, yeah. You know, it has great critique that's relevant to the times. Um, and and I, I do like what you said. Like it criticizes the genre, but it also represents it. It's an awesome watch for horror fans. Probably be a I do feel like it's better enjoyed, like Lorian said. And it's better enjoyed if you have a background with horror already. Yeah. Although I will say, my husband, who does not like horror, he likes Tucker and Dale, and he likes Cabin in the Woods. And other than that, I don't know if he likes any horror. Interesting. There you go. And it also shows us that uh, zombies are not the same as zombie redneck torture. Those are two mm -hmm. different genres. Don't mistake the two. It's a, it's a rookie horror mistake. <laughs> I would just say it's really interesting to watch this movie right after watching Evil Dead um, because so much of it is reminiscent of Evil Dead. You can see it. And actually, that one's interesting in that Ash is, I mean, Evil Dead isn't a slasher, but you could probably make an argument that Ash is the final girl, which would be interesting. Yeah, he was, he's always an interesting character because he is very non-masculine for being a masculine role i think we um, i think we talked about that in our episode yeah. on the evil dead i want to say we did is that he actually screams which is just like why is a man screaming yeah he screams and he, and he becomes frozen like with fear yeah unable to do anything i totally thought of the evil dead when she started reading the latin and then the zombies like burst out of the grave that it was like straight from evil dead basically <laughs> yeah and i mean even going into the basement and finding yep. the book yeah the cellar blowing open and everything and if you look at the whiteboard, uh, the betting board, oh no, I closed the image, uh, deadites are listed as one of the potential monsters. Oh, that's great. Oh. <laughs> and angry molesting tree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad they did not have that in this movie. Well, actually, it is in the movie. If you watch the monsters oh. coming out of the elevators. Oh, yeah. you're right. Yeah. If you watch that scene a million times, you can see all sorts of different monsters. And one of them is the angry molesting tree um, explodes out of the elevator and grabs a guy. Doing its molestering thing. Yeah. <laughs> I guess before we get to the surveys, that that scene 
is incredible. Oh yeah. What what a piece of art. Those elevators coming down. Oh my god. That was great. Yeah. That is that is quite possibly the best, maybe even like my favorite action sequence of all time. Those like creatures coming out of the elevators. It's so it's so fun and just is great. What a, what a great mm. scene. Agreed. It was fun. And they did as much of it as possible practically, like with costumes and makeup and mm-hmm. buckets and buckets and buckets of fake blood. Like so much fake blood. That's awesome. Yeah, it holds up pretty well. It does, yeah. I, I feel like we don't get enough practical in today's world and environment. There's too much CGI involved with horror, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And I want to see that practical. Yeah. I will say before we do surveys, I filled out a survey before I realized I would be guesting. So I don't know if that's unfair, but no, you know. <laughs> how dare you? I think Muffin did the same when she guessed it. How how dare uh, she? <laughs> <laughs> Muffin, gosh dang it. We're, we're, we're taking that episode off the air. Mm-hmm. So I didn't say it at the beginning, I meant to, but our audience's average rating was an 8.5. So that's pretty high up. What really hurts it is the fact that there's this random two in there when everything else is seven or above. <laughs> and that hurt my soul. How, how dare. But to each their own. Nope, we're taking it out. It would have been a 9.4 if we didn't have that person that hated this movie. You know, it's one of those uh, st- statistical anomalies. I think mm-hmm. we can, uh, you know, safely remove it. It's just, it's just one of those people that are wrong. Is I mean, it's not personal. Listen, it's just, it's outside. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, it's outside the two sigma standard deviation or whatnot. Also, it was Kerm, so we can totally get rid. Of it. That's right. <laughs> it's like, it's like I think Bryn says something like everybody's entitled to their opinions, but their opinions are wrong. Yeah. <laughs> That's all it is. Yeah, that's all it is. Now, we do value each person's input, though. And I do think that you, some people will watch this movie and not get a kick out of it. And that's fair. Totally. So on the scary chart, how scary was it? Uh, people in general didn't find it too scary. It was sitting like in kind of the two to four range. We do have just a one eight out there. But yeah, it was. I, I agree. It wasn't terrifying. I think there was some scary like imagery. But the most part is kind of fascination with these horror creatures. Mm hmm. But they did make sure to incorporate those like scary slasher moments. They did jump scare as well, which I appreciate. Like mm-hmm. just surprise moments were just spot on. I feel like this the fear in this movie for me comes out of what it makes me think about. My fear comes from, oh shit, am I the people in the lab? Am I the angry gods? How do I not be uh, that? Like, what does that mean? I get what you mean, yeah. The fear is that you have to self-reflect. Yeah. The worst kind of fear. <laughs> no. No. No, please. Not inwards. <laughs> so with this passive fear one, I didn't feel like there was like any hard topics that were just meant to be feared in this movie. So I made I it was our first open-ended passive fear question. I just asked which horror creature scared you the most, or do you think would have or you think would have if we'd seen a version where they chose that horror creature instead? Do you guys remember any ones that you were like, that would have been terrifying to see? I need some time to think about it. You're going to have to go through the, the audiences first. <laughs> That's fair. I personally, I would have loved to see what the unicorn did. I don't think it would have been the most terrifying, but I would have loved to see a movie with the unicorn. <laughs> yeah, you could do like a million different versions of this movie. You couldn't do a sequel because the world ends, but you yeah. could do like, and if they picked this, like, <laughs> but yeah, I remember my answer to the survey but one of the monsters I enjoyed seeing was very briefly the reverse. Not not that they would be necessarily that scary for me, but it's an interesting. The reavers? 
Reavers from Firefly and Serenity. Oh, I didn't even realize there were Reavers in there. Yeah, there's like one little shot of a Reaver. Uh huh. I don't even know Reavers. Though. I don't know Firefly. Reavers are pretty scary. Huh. Well, okay. So our audience, they said, I don't fear any of these creatures. They are all kind-hearted individuals, especially the giant snake. <laughs> That's fair. The snake was sweet. Um, the girl with the teeth face, kind of like that other movie. The teeth face was kind of creepy. I'll, I agree with that. That would be weird. That'd just be creepy to see. Mm. Some scary imagery there. Kind of as an understatement. Uh, <laughs> I absolutely hated that weird saw dad guy. The bear trap messed me up. So yeah, it was just the the actual redneck torture family that did it for them. The the idea of like getting grabbed from behind by a bear trap is pretty frightening. It is. I don't know how. I don't know how you make that work. Though just the mechanics behind it, I feel like you can't keep a bear trap open like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, while it's being thrown. Yeah, I, I don't know. It feels tricky to me. <laughs> well, in a future episode of Pans of Fear Mythbusters. <laughs> we're gonna try this out here i have a bear trap marshall's over there yeah. marshall had to go he was bleeding <laughs> oh Lord. um another i feel like the ballerina would have been the creepiest because she didn't seem op like a lot of the others interesting there is yeah we, we were talking about it with lazarus effect that when the enemy is overpowered it isn't so so much fun uh, however, I feel like with any of the creatures we saw, really, you can construct the story and construct the situation in such a way that it wouldn't seem OP. It would, it would seem like there's a chance for people at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the giant snake, like you could have done something, you know. I think what did it is just it was all the things all at once. Yeah, like they were they were prepared for for probably one of those at least, but mm-hmm. having all of them, no. I thought it was hilarious that they had a button. To release all, yeah. So like was... in case, <laughs> in case we want to just like end the world on our own. Maybe it was put there by the higher ups in case they had to get rid of everyone. Yeah, it was put there by Sigourney Weaver. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, of course. It would be Weaver. <laughs> yeah, it would be. <laughs> Dang. Um, the next one is if I'm being honest, the giant spider. But I feel like the Evil Dead tree. That's one of my favorite reference. Yeah, that was my answer. Mm-hmm. Spiders. Well, the spider does. Ter- I thought I saw that spider. What's what's such a shame about this movie? I feel like is that all of the creatures they made were made super well. Like, uh, may I think the the least well done one was the clown. But I feel like he doesn't need to be well done. Um, yeah, it's just a clown. Yeah, exactly. So like, but like, and it's like one of my favorite werewolves I've seen on screen. And like the spider looks terrifying. It any of these creatures in a movie of their own would have been great. And it's such a shame they didn't get that much screen time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the spider messes me up. Uh, so our next one is going with the undead hillbilly family was definitely the right choice. Yeah, they were scary. I think they are actually a really well-constructed horror creature, which was nice. Yeah. Um, the merman. I forget. The, the merman was hilarious. I love that whole running gag throughout the movie. <laughs> It's like, I just want to see a merman, dude. <laughs> One thing I love is that that scene with the merman when he's eating um, Steve is the you see like blood geysering out of his back and it does it in like a few different spurts. And that was actually an accident because like something went wrong with like the piping or whatever. Uh, but they they were like, that actually works really well. Let's keep that in. <laughs> Our next one is Dunno. I tend to find less physically violent monsters scarier and those weren't showcased much. 
I do agree that they didn't get, seem to do much. We see that one like ghost specter thing fly through, but it just leaves like wisps. It doesn't actually do anything that I remember, mm-hmm. which is being scary. The last one is I think the zombie redneck torture family would be pretty terrifying in real life. So people thought that the zombie redneck torture family was actually the one that was scariest. Yeah, I could see that, especially since we got to see more of them. I feel like yeah. um, the guy who like one of the ones they almost chose uh, with like the, the saw blades in his head. Oh, yeah. The what's it, the oh God, the, he was he's a parody of a character from a popular movie franchise. Hellraiser, I think. Yeah, Hellraiser. It's he just got he's got a bunch of instead of like saws in his face, he's just got a bunch of pins in his face, and he carries around like this little box. So instead of a box, it's a sphere, and instead of pins, it's a saw blades. Yeah, so that's all there is to it. That's clever. I do love that guy in the elevator, though. Like, just the actor who played him did such a good job with like I could not tell what he was thinking, and I just wanted to stare into his eyes until I could figure out. What is he thinking? I totally agree, actually. Like, and it's so weird because, of course, he doesn't say anything. But yeah, his expression and like just the way that he looks. Yeah, I totally agree. It's a very interesting look that he gives her. Um. So our last question was, which role do you identify most with the movie? The sacrifices, the directors or the ancient gods? Why and how so? Um, the examples I put and I, there's, I don't know if there, there's no truth to these examples, at least not mine. Mm. Um. But like Marshall is a sacrifice, definitely the whore because he exudes bottom energy. Uh, Ian was a director, definitely in the chem department because he gets the job done. <laughs> just a couple, uh, just a couple of examples there of like what I was looking for, <laughs> and people took it and did whatever. With it. Uh, so the first one is I identify as the reptilian goddess. I have a suspicion that this is reptilian goddess in the Discord, and they said, uh, "Give me better sacrifices." <laughs> So they're definitely the ancient guy. Um, directors, because I've done boring office work centered around people's misery. <laughs> wow, that's so hard. Oh, man. Um, I'd be one of the nightmares chilling in my cube till it's time to shine. I like that. You didn't even give with, go with one of the three options I gave you. Um, I would have been the stoner for sure. That just wants to vibe and not read dumb things. Like, come on, think about it. <laughs> I dig Smart. that. Smart. Uh, I think I'd be a sacrifice because I'm no good at being in charge of things, and I couldn't even own a snake if I wanted because I wouldn't be willing to feed it live mice, much less feed humans to the evil god. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's fair. I won't. I won't be a director because I won't want to feed the snake. Hey, that was me. <laughs> I, I, I was like, hold on. I think this is Lauren because. <laughs> Uh, I like your answer. I've definitely had to feed live animals to other animals, and it's always like, huh, am I evil for this? Is this okay? Mm-hmm. Our next is, as far as which sacrifice, I'm not sure if I would be the scholar, because I'm a nerd and overanalyze things for fun. This the is still fool. mine. <laughs> oh, wait, oh my god, oh my god, this is long. Oh, <laughs> yeah, oh my sorry. lord. Oh. No, you're fine. Hey, look, you broke it up into parts, so it looks like it's broken up on my sheet here. Oh, yeah, I was trying to make it easier to read. okay i'm curious now as far as which sacrifice i'm not sure if i would be the scholar because i'm a nerd and overanalyze things for fun the fool because i'm a fucking weirdo and don't even make sense to myself or the whore because i'm bi and a bi stereotype is that i must want to fuck everyone all the time (laughs) (laughs) that's great i that is the best way to describe yourself as a sacrifice just a good blend between all of them (laughs) and then i think i have at least one more (laughs) 
Uh, no, I'm seeing this last one. I haven't even gotten into it. Basically, I just know I wouldn't be the athlete because I'm not athletic and I hate sports and I wouldn't be the virgin because, well, I wouldn't. That's fair. <laughs> I, I said, well, dot, 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 I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, our next one. I for sure live my life as a clueless facility intern. What a place it would be to internet. I'm just thinking about like applying for an internship there. I, I like how he was also like, you know, I don't qualify for overtime because I'm an intern. <laughs> oh, yeah, we did have an intern. <laughs> Ronald the intern. Like, they can't advertise it. Like, do you want to sacrifice humans to gods? You should intern here. Not only do you have to sacrifice humans to gods, but you also don't get paid overtime. <laughs> <laughs> um, I next one is sacrifice because whenever I have a good plan, it always falls through like the jock motorcycling into the barrier. That was rough. And like the way his body fell and how long they showed his body falling. Oh, man. Man, that was rough. And it was such a good plan, too. It was. He had it going. And uh, I never noticed it before, but like the hawk in the beginning is totally the preset to what we see there, like at that point. And mm -hmm. I was like, they set it up. I can't believe they did that. I didn't feel too hurt that they hadn't set it up. But then I saw they did set it up and I was like, that's genius. Mm hmm. Our next is scholar sacrifice. It'd be easy to get me to fall back on book smarts and drop all pretense of social or other skills. <laughs> Interesting. I like. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? I think the idea is like when you fall on book smarts, you might not see a redneck zombie coming at you. That's fair. I haven't read any books with that. Exactly. Like books <laughs> don't teach you that, man. Um. Our last one is, I think as the audience, and specifically as horror movie fans and consumers, we are all the ancient gods. And they're the one that like kind of got into what I was talking about, the whole metaphor behind the movie. Mm -hmm. um, so cool. I'm glad they picked up on that. And that's all, that's all the survey questions we have today. Nice. Are there any final thoughts we want to give y'all? I'm all good. Do y'all have anything? Did you already say who you related to? Uh, oh, my, I'm, I might not have. I might have just made you guys do that. I, I haven't said mine either. Okay, so we just invited Lorian on and made her do that. Yep. <laughs> and then didn't participate ourselves. Yeah, that sounds good. That's fair. I, yeah, think, nice. we, I think we leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, for me, it's honestly probably the scholar. I forget his name. Holden. Holden, yeah. I'm, I'd probably be most like Holden. Just trying to make the best out of a rough situation. I was I was thinking similarly because I, I, I honestly like I don't think I would stop someone from reading Latin out of a book that they found in a creepy cellar. I'd be like if anyone was trying to put it down, I'd be like, let me do it. I yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> I, I, I would be interested. I'd be like, yeah, <laughs> let's see. This is a cool thing to do. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I could be Jules. I'd make out with a wolf. Oh, see, <laughs> I would not do that. That that scene might be the hardest scene in the entire movie for me to watch by far like that is just <laughs> it's weirdly uncomfortable because like she's doing a fine job of making out with the wolf that's the problem is that she's doing a fine job <laughs> yeah exactly i'd rather she did not do such a good job apparently they coated the wolf's silicone tongue with sugar to make it a little easier on her <laughs> oh my god that's actually great i love that and the, the the wolf tongue looked pretty realistic too which was gosh Whiz. Um, I wouldn't be able to do it because I would just be so sad that there's a dead wolf. <laughs> I I would. There's so many reasons, <laughs> but I mean, maybe I could relate to. Uh, maybe I could also relate to Dana. 
I could relate to her a little bit. Because, I mean, I mean, she's also pretty close throughout the whole thing. Or, or Jules, perhaps. The only reason I can't relate to Dana is because she's so inactive throughout most of it. That's true. Like, honestly, she's carried throughout the whole movie. She doesn't ever do anything on her own. She, she um, almost shoots Marty. Yeah, she almost shoots Marty. That's, <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> honestly, I, I see Ian as a Jules. Because, like, when we see her before, ha. like, she's as affected by everything. She's, mm-hmm. like... You know, talking to her friend and trying to make her friend feel better and telling her friend that the professor's an asshole, not you. And like encouraging her friend that like, hey, sometimes uh, it's okay to just go have fun. There you like, go. So it's it's the Ian is the cognitively viable. <laughs> I am the I am the non tampered with blonde. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there, go, there are worse things to be, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, and I've got luscious blonde locks as well. So, you know, it all fits easy it's yeah. all natural so i don't i don't i'm pretty sure no one snuck uh the dummy compounds in there no it's just in your dna Ian. no sh- shoot. <laughs> <laughs> except inst- instead of it being dumb blonde it's crazy blonde there you go well uh i think that's all that's all i gotta say anyone else want to give some final thoughts before we hit it you know i don't think kurt has a cousin Oh, yeah, I love that. That was a great line at the end. I don't think Kurt even has a cousin. <laughs> that was beautiful. Uh, all right. Well, on, on that bombshell, it's time to end. Check us out on Discord. Link in description. Uh, check us out on Twitch. We try to stream Mondays, Wednesdays, 7 p.m. Uh, Wednesdays are volatile but i am yes i am doing omari on mondays i'm currently streaming omari having a good time uh 7 p.m mountain time and uh of course watch our movies every friday 7 p.m on the discord so check it out soon we'll have the website up it'll be stuff you can do with and then it'll be good uh (laughs) lorian thank you so much for joining us today are are there any plugs you want to leave do you want to promote anything while you're here i mean i have uh some social media accounts. They're basically all Lothorian Lightfoot. Um, I guess I can send the links to Ian. I don't know if you guys put links in the description. No, we do, by all means. But uh, I I have some dance tutorials on YouTube, and I actually teach dance at Dance Life in Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, fingers crossed, we're hopefully going to be able to get those online at some point. For now, it's just if you're in Madison, Wisconsin, you can come dance with me. <laughs> but but sometime in the not-too-distant future, we're hoping to get Zoom set up in that studio. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much for listening, and you all have a wonderful day. Farewell. Bye.